Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm your co-host, Jacob Solis. This week, we'll be bringing you three stories. The first is about the election, but if you're all electioned out, the last two stories are here as a palate cleanser from all of the news surrounding politics. We hope they bring you levity, joy, and maybe a little bit of hope while you wait in line to vote. And if you're listening after the election, sit back and enjoy the change in topics. For our first bit on the election, it's CEO John Ralston, who sits down to chat about early voting numbers and has a few predictions on the election. After that, I sit down with Nevada author Robin McLean to talk about moving to Nevada, her new book, and what it means to be a Westerner. And at the end of the show, Sherilyn Hayes-Zorn from the Nevada Historical Society brings a few fun Nevada stories that might one day come in handy during a trivia tournament. Well, I am here with our CEO, John Ralston, on the podcast. John, you haven't been on the podcast much, but you have been hard at work on the the early voting blog. Joey, why don't you invite me on the podcast more often? What's the story with that? You're on you're on so many other podcasts. You don't have time. You're on everyone else's podcast. Joey, you're always my first priority, you know. Uh, I, this this is what I do during this two-week period, Joey, is I'm obsessed with all the numbers in early voting now because what people may not know, there's all kinds of stories written about how early voting is not predictive and people shouldn't pay attention to it around the country. But in Nevada, it really can be predictive because so many people vote early in a normal election. And I don't know if we'll ever have a normal one again, Joey, two thirds of the people vote early. 90% voted early in 2020, but turnout this time is, seems much lower. The mail hasn't come in as fast. And I think it's about 500,000, 550,000, I forget the number now, have voted. And you, you need to double that to get to 60% turnout, which is still pretty low. Yeah, I mailed my ballot in right before you and I started talking. I ran out of the mailbox and <laughs> threw it in. So you're not going to have my number in there quite yet. But what, what what are you seeing right now? What is the general trend? Are you seeing something towards Republicans, towards Democrats, towards independents? I think I, I, the Democrats should be concerned about these results. You know, what, what's happened since the so-called Reed machine revved up in 2008 and was able to register and turn out so many voters, the Democrats would bank a whole bunch of votes before election day, Joey, so that election day wouldn't be as meaningful and they could feel pretty confident that they had their inveterate voters already having cast ballot. And they usually have tens of thousands of ballots more than the Republicans. Well, they don't this time. Right now, it's only about 5,200 or so, as you and I are chatting on the last day of early voting. And that's only 1%. It's only a 1% lead statewide. It's, it's about 25,000 in Clark County, which may sound like a lot, but you know, I think like 360,000 votes have been cast in Clark County. So the Democrats do not have any cushion the way they usually do. And in a year in which the atmospherics all tilt towards the Republicans, Joe Biden's bad numbers, Democrats in power in almost every important state office. I don't think that's a great sign for them. I think generally the idea is that the Democrats turn up more to early voting and then on Election Day, you're going to see more Republicans voting with kind of this distrust in mail voting from the right. You're going to see a lot more of them voting in person on Election Day, right? I think that's probably true in 2020, the Republicans had 16,000 more ballots cast than than the Democrats. It was relatively significant, but the Democrats actually won early voting by a few thousand in two previous elections. But I think the conventional wisdom is, and, and it makes some sense, 
that because of what you said, the Republicans have had a lot of their leaders say mail balloting isn't safe, et cetera, that they will vote in person on election day, although a lot of Republicans have already voted by mail. Yeah. And then let's talk a little bit about the independents, right? The, the nonpartisan voters, they make up a huge percentage of the electorate here in Nevada. What are you seeing with them right now? They're the plurality now in the in Nevada, Joey. And so that's a real problem for Democrats and Republicans to figure out who these people are and who they're voting for. And can, and are the in, independents who are turning out? And there are a lot of them who have turned out. They're more than a fifth of the total turnout right now. And that's a lot of, you know, it's going to be uh, up into the six figures of, of people who don't have any party affiliation. You know, Mark Melman, the Democratic pollster, once said to me, John, there's no such thing as an independent. And, and, and it's true to the extent that everyone leans one way or the other, right, Joey? And so which party is able to find the independents that lean their way are going to do better in this election? Do you have a sense at all of how nonpartisans are leaning in Nevada generally? It's a really good question. So generally, nonpartisans lean the way that the partisan winds are blowing that year. For instance, in 2018, when the Democrats did very well because of Donald Trump being president, they leaned Democrat. Are they going to lean Republican this time? Polling indicates that they are. Again, we just don't know. Well, then let's let's wrap up by I'm going to ask you to play pundit here a little bit and 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 opine on possible outcomes. Maybe give me two or three possible outcomes for what do you think is going to happen in this election? Joey, I know you're too young to have seen the original Mission Impossible series in, in, in the 1960s, but you have to promise me that if I'm wrong on any of these, the tape is destroyed, that no one ever hears this. You <laughs> I, promise? I promise. I promise. You're, well, and you're never wrong anyway. So yeah, there we go. So, you know, the most interesting races, of course, most important ones are the ones for Senate and governor. And I wouldn't be surprised at all at any of the outcomes. Both Republicans win, both Democrats win one and one. But uh, I think Adam Laxalt is more likely to lose than Joe Lombardo. So that's about as far as I'll go on that. And, and neither of them may lose and both may win. I do think that the Democrats will lose a House seat. Which one? I think Susie Lee is the most likely to lose. But depending on what happens, you know, mail ballots can still come in up until four days after the election, as long as they're postmarked by election day. So Susie Lee's the most likely one of the three of uh, Stephen Horsford and Dina Titus being the others to lose. And I think that the Democrats are still going to be solidly in control of the legislature. So th those are my three. And the last one is the only one I feel really confident about. If I'm right, that the Democrats still control the legislature, even if Joe Lombardo wins, he's going to have a tough time getting anything through there that the Democrats don't want. All right, John, well, we'll wrap up our pre-election coverage with that. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Joey. Well, there you have it, Joey. We have done a ton of election reporting, and John has been following those numbers, and it all comes down to Election Day. That will be the last of the pre-election reporting on the podcast, but we're going to have plenty after the election. So, Jacob, are you glad to be done with all of the, the pre-election reporting? That's my secret, Joey. I'm never done. <laughs> you're, you're constantly reporting the election. You're just ready for the next one, right? <laughs> you, you jest, but 2024 begins now. <laughs> well, at least we'll have a break from the political ads for a little bit, hopefully. Yes, and as Monty Python would say, and now for something completely different. So if you've skipped ahead, welcome to the fun part of the show, a break from election talk. Robin McLean is an author who moved to rural Nevada and has a new book called Get Em Young, Treat Em Tough, Tell Em Nothing. 
She sat down with me to talk about the book, Nevada, the West, and a lot more. She's extremely insightful, and I hope you enjoy our chat. Alrighty, well, I am here with author Robin McLean, who lives here in Nevada, and you're a writer of books such as Pity the Beast, Reptile House, and most recently, Get Them Young, Treat Them Tough, Tell Them Nothing. Uh, so Robin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to get on the Nevada airwaves. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Nevada airwaves love talking about books. We're huge book readers here at the Nevada Independent. And so we're, we're kind of talking about this book and then also kind of about Nevada in general a little bit more. The reason I'm talking to you is actually I saw you during a panel during the literary crawl here in Reno where you talked about kind of what it means to be a Westerner. And I, I really loved what you had to say. And so to start off, I actually just wanted to ask a little bit about you and how you ended up here in Nevada. Well, I grew up in the Midwest. Then I went to school on the East Coast. And then I went to law school in the Midwest and then wanted to get the hell out of there to probably the farthest place I could go without changing language or currency, which was Alaska. <laughs> And I realized that I love the West. And as a Midwesterner who had been on the East Coast, you really feel the differences between these regional vibes. And Alaska was sort of a frontier place. And I ended up in Nevada when I was on a book tour for my first book, Reptile House, where I was camping with my niece and nephew. And I told them that they had to navigate from Denver to San Francisco without using any big highways. And I showed them this thing called an atlas with a bunch of paper. And we ended up on Highway 50 and a friend of theirs lived off of Highway 50, which everybody in Nevada knows is the loneliest road in America. And I fell in love with that place. It was the first place that I had been since Alaska that blew my mind in the same way Alaska did. And I've been there since. You're kind of in an interesting part in Nevada, right? You're not in a main city. Oh, no, I'm in the Monitor Valley. So if you put your finger on the middle of the state, basically the geographic center of the state, the very, very northern edge of Nye County, I get my mail in Eureka. I get my hair cut in Reno. I go to the bookstore in Reno or Las Vegas. It's very, very beautiful out there. A lot of people have been to Diana's Punch Bowl, which is a, an extinct geyser left over from the Yellowstone formation. And I can see it from the porch out there. And I've been running a little writer's retreat. Well, I, I, I love rural Nevada. I have a very strong connection to it. I, I worked on the travel show Wild Nevada for PBS for a while. And so I've experienced a lot of it. And I think that it's, it's awesome that we're getting writers that are living out there because I think that it hopefully it inspires some of your writing. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And I wanted to know, you know, part of what you talked about during your panel for the uh, literary crawl here in Reno was what it means to be a Westerner. And I wanted to ask you a little bit of a different version of that question, which is what does it mean to be a Nevadan specifically to you? It's interesting to talk to people who are coming into these places because it's sort of like being an alien landing on another planet. You you observe in a different way. And for me, I think Nevada is very interesting because it's got this mixture of, of really distinctive cultures. So you've got the sort of Western story, the Western myth, the cowboy, the cowgirl, the rodeo, the cattle ranching, the hunting culture. And, and all of the stories and the beliefs about self that come with that. But you also have California right over there, this very, very contemporary current culture with high tech. And then you've got 
this very crazy gambling culture that I had never encountered before of entertainment and the fantasies and dreams that come with getting rich. I mean, it's all or comes around these sort of dreams, the dream of the Western hero, the dream of making some kind of step into the future, which is what computer culture is, I guess. And then this dream of great wealth. And then you have this sort of vast landscape that's so unpopulated by humans. And for me, overwhelmingly powerful and beautiful natural world, that, that's a very interesting set of conditions. Does this state, does this inspire your writing, especially in your new book? It's definitely a very fertile place for a writer like me, because I know what I'm interested in is I'm interested in the United States of America. I'm interested in North America or the American mindset. This collection that has just come out, Getting Young, Treating Tough, Telling Nothing, is really about me exploring what is it to be an American or the American dream and sort of the good and the bad, because I'm interested in gorgeous aspirational aspects of being an American, but also the, you know, the pull up by bootstraps. But there's a, there's another side to that, the get it by all means necessary methodology that doesn't always work out for us as people or for the planet or for other beings besides humans. And so the way I write or the why I write is me working out these questions in my mind, a deep love of America and definitely a critique that I struggle with inside me. So to be in a place like Nevada, where those things are clashing fundamentally, just that is how the state works. It's perfect in a way. I don't think when I moved here, I thought that's why I'm moving here. But I think you gravitate toward places or people or landscapes or other beings that are somehow helpful to you in, in living your life. So if you can, which I have been able to. I think that's like a beautiful way to, to look at it. And I wanted to read a quote from the New York Times review of your book, which again is, get them young, treat them tough, tell them nothing. And the, the quote that I loved from the New York Times review is, it's grotesque, morally unsettling, and entertaining all at once. <laughs> Do you think that that's a good uh, description of your book? <laughs> yeah, that's. I was very thrilled by that. I think that's what I'm trying to do because, because that's how I experience life or where I am attracted and repelled by the same thing. And I, I want my writing to be sort of morally inquisitive and intellectually interesting and also entertaining to me. Well, I, I think it's very telling when, when grotesque is used in a, in a positive way, I would say. <laughs> so... One of your other books, Pity the Beast, it, it really focuses on the West. And I, I think it's been described as a feminist look at, at Western culture in some ways. Why focus your writing, you know, out here? I didn't plan it. You know, a lot of people believe that writers plan everything out. But I really believe that the unconscious sort of runs what I do. And I had written a short story about this emergency that happened with the horse at the farm next door. And so I noticed that I had written a story where there's horses and farms and rural people. Then I found, oh, I'm writing a Western. And so it wasn't that I planned it out. I've written, you know, space stories or city stories. And, and that story happened to mosey on into the West. However, I am very, very interested in the American psyche. And I believe that the American psyche sort of runs on the Western myth. So it, it made sense in some ways that that's where 
I ended up writing a very, very, very long story. So, so how are you connecting the greater American dream and myth, right, that you kind of talked about in your newest book with the West, which you've talked about in your previous books and kind of where you live now? I think of all stories as thoughts. I think mm -hmm. a book as a thought, a story as a thought. And whatever a writer is thinking about, those thoughts are going to filter through. So in the new collection, I'll ha I have a story that's set in Las Vegas. It's also set in the desert south of Las Vegas. And it's about greed, basically, or it's about victimhood or selfishness or getting what you need to survive. I think for me as an American, as a proud American, I think about how much greed is good and how much greed is bad. I mean, in some ways you think of the system where gambling or capitalism or people are sort of judged by how much money they have. Where does that come from? And I feel like it comes from this idea that if you have a lot, that you deserve it more than somebody else um, rather than luck. In the, the novel, of course, there's misogyny. This, the book is very much about misogyny and patriarchy that's invisible if you choose not to see it. And these massive power dynamics that ex exist in the system that runs on the idea that I earned it myself. So if you struggle with this principle that I'm going to earn everything I have on my own, but there are certain people in the culture that actually don't have as much power. That's very, very interesting and fertile material. And I think my interest is writing about that kind of thing. How is Nevada the West and how isn't Nevada the West? I have really strong bias. Like I think that, that Nevada is the most Western place that I can think of because it's, at least where I live, it's not a bunch of tourists running around or something like that. The people who live there it's people who love the land, who have been there for six generations. I'm not one of them. People come together and help each other. <laughs> Even strangers coming through are treated really, really well. And that's that's the good side. And I, I really, really admire that about where I live and how it is in the West. I mean, in some ways, I think, how long will the West exist in this nation that we live in? This idea of honoring the land, which is very, very central to this idea of the West, existing in the land. And that's, of course, shrinking. We have this issue of water. How long will we have a West at all? Do you think that people then have the right view of Nevada, of the West? Or do you think that with your writing, you're trying to reshape that perception? There's no doubt that I'm trying to reshape perception. You're not sitting down saying I'm writing this to reshape perception, but I'm definitely making trouble with my work. My stuff rattles people. It rattles me. So you don't do that unless you want to shift things around. And I think of art and writing as so important to the world. And so I take it really, really seriously. And if somebody engages with my writing, that is such an honor to me that that somebody would engage with my work and I want to have an exchange with them that is meaningful. And also the, the thing about uh, the American dream is it's important at this time in history, I think, to identify what is real and what is not real. I have a lot of concerns about the world, about the planet, about democracy, about the future, about what is going to happen and this is my way of contributing to that conversation.
this conversation moving forward, where would you like to see that conversation go in the future? Are, are, are you like, what are your biggest concerns? I, I want lots of things. And I think what I, what I see, because I've been traveling around with this book stuff, is that everyone wants something very good for our country and our world. One of the things that's been very difficult and very beautiful about where I've lived is that I don't really align politically with a lot of my friends or neighbors, but we align as people very, very well. And I admire them and they admire me. I actually think that that's one of the most beautiful things about Americans is that when we come together individually, we can appreciate and admire and actually listen to each other. And what I worry about a lot is that sort of in this collective and the noisy, distant world where people aren't actually close together talking is that we just trash each other. I think the America that I love very much is one that can argue and can debate and can disagree respectfully, but we we desperately need to be able to listen to each other. And so that's what I hope will happen for the future because I don't know anyone who's not worried about America right now. I don't know anyone who's not worried about the future for their kids or for the planet. And so I hope that the methodology of communication will shift towards turning off the noise and speaking more directly to each other and more respectfully to each other. Alrighty, well, to wrap up this week, we are talking with the Historical Society. That's right. We asked them to bring some of their favorite Nevada stories to us for the podcast. And curator Sherilyn Hayes-Zorn comes on the show to tell us some of those stories. Jacob, do you have a favorite Nevada story or fact? Joey, my favorite Nevada fun fact is the time the federal government seized a giant golden rooster from the Sparks Nugget and Paul Laxalt, before he was governor, defended it in court. Incredible stuff. (laughs) All right, well, and with that, we'll jump into our interview. I'm here with Sherry Hayes-Zorn with the Historical Society up here in Reno. You are the curator of history at the Historical Society, and you've brought some fun Nevada facts for us to learn today on the podcast. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here today. And the first one that you've brought is about women's suffrage, right? It is. There's so many interesting tidbits of in Nevada's history with women and men, but my heart is for the early suffragettes and the push for women's rights. So there's definitely some important women here in the state. So the first woman I'm going to talk about is Mrs. Frances Williamson. She actually came to Austin, Nevada around 1863 to teach school. By 1886, she wrote The Age of Shame. It was a kind of a series of essays of politics, society, fashion, religion, morals, domesticity, and other topics that impacted women of the time. She'd always been a proponent for women's suffrage and the right for women to have the right to vote. She actually organized the Suffrage League in Austin, 1894. She started writing a series of 
pro-suffrage letters in the Reno Evening Gazette to try to promote this cause. And she then created, and we actually have one copy in our collection, the Nevada Citizen. And that is our first Nevada suffrage newspaper in the state. And the governor and the legislature in 1895 proposed the amendment for the suffrage movement and it was passed in the state legislature in 1895. And she then started really hitting the trail, so to speak, of campaigning and going to different women's clubs and organizations to really continue with lobbying and hoping it would pass in 1897. However, the the bill didn't pass. So definitely a strong woman who made some important strides and left an impact on Nevada's state. Now on to our next little fun tidbit. We're going to talk, but you know, we were talking about suffrage and now we're moving to a totally different topic, rivers. <laughs> and so you have some facts about the Humboldt River, right? I do. So it's such an important waterway across Nevada. And what I find interesting is the name of the Humboldt River and what it was called beforehand, before Fremont actually officially named it in 1845. The first recorded sighting of the river by a Euro-American was Peter Ogden that worked with the Hudson Bay Company. He was crossing what is Nevada today during his fifth expedition in 1828. They were looking for beaver. At first, he calls it in his diaries, Unknown River, because he doesn't know the source and if there's a name associated with it. Shortly afterward, he starts referring it to Paul's River as one of his trappers along the way died and they buried the trapper along the riverbank. Then the next reference, and you do see this reference for many years on and off was called Mary's River or St. Mary's River. But actually there is a river ultimately in California that's Mary's River. So it is kind of confusing, but that's the name associated with one of the trapper's wives at the time. Several Mm -hmm. names are happening here. By 1829, (laughs) Swampy River. Because it, as you're traveling across, you know, that's, I guess, in some ways that could be described as the best descriptive detailing. And especially when you're dealing with like the immigrants having to cross over the river, there's definitely grasses and things the animals can can eat along the way, but it also was very difficult when the waters were higher for the immigrants getting wagons stuck. So that's, you know, by 1829. Then you have Bonneville and Joseph Walker's expedition and their party is in 1833. So they call it Barren River because apparently there's not a lot of water (laughs) or the area is quite barren. But then that expedition, uh, Walker Irving writes his journal and mentions it as being Ogden's River. And so that's another term that was being used in some of the explorer's notes and references on maps. So so you've got Ogden's River, you got Swampy River, Barren River, Unknown River, but it's not until 1845 during Fremont's second and third expedition when they actually name it Humboldt River. And that's named after the Prussian German scientist, Alexander von Humboldt. Now he would, you would call an ecologist and a naturalist environmentalist for the time. And so he has so many things named after him and, and he never 
even came to the United States. So it's, it's an interesting fact, you know, about all these names. And when people make references to these others, it's like, okay, what, what water source are we talking about? <laughs> which which so, one is it? Which river? <laughs> which one is it? <laughs> it's all the same river. So it, it's all the same. It's all the same. So it's fun when you actually are looking at some of the older maps and journals, you can see these references. And so you also have moving kind of from the territory to statehood, right? There's a bunch of little facts about Nevada's statehood early on. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so much great history, but I, I always love the territorial seal. It was actually in November of 1861. The original design was created by Orrin Clemens and the, the committee couldn't come up with any other designs. And that actually became the official territorial seal. But what's an interesting little side note is that it's very similar to the Iowa state seal. And he actually lived in Iowa before he came out to become the territorial secretary for Nevada. The second one is the longest Morris code telegram ever sent was when the Nevada state constitution was sent from Carson city to Washington DC and cost over $3,000 at the time. I mean, oh, wow. That, that's a lot of money. <laughs> it's an expensive text message. <laughs> it is. I, I, I'm seeing that. But what I think is interesting, the first part was actually tapped out by one of our future Nevada governors, Frank Bell, who was the seventh governor. And he was a cousin to Alexander Graham Bell, who was the inventor of the telephone. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't know that he was his cousin. Yeah, yeah distant cousin. So oh, fun. that's little fact. Interesting. <laughs> well, Sherry, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. We always love talking about history, and I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you soon on the podcast as we have more fun historical facts from the Nevada Historical Society, which also people can come visit and learn more about any of these, these topics that we talked about, right? Absolutely. We are open to the public Wednesday through Friday from 10 to 4. If you have questions, please visit our website and send us an email or come by and visit. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at com. Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>